This is an ABC podcast. Tarloffa lover and warm Pacific greetings. It's Tuesday the 13th of June and you're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Talia Olatia. Today on the program, Australia's Department of Home Affairs faces growing calls to refund New Zealanders who paid for an expensive permanent resident visa that will soon become redundant. They could have avoided the worry of that. Like, why? Why it makes them pay for it? A big wave warning. Experts concerned that climate change is creating huge four-storey high waves that could hit the Pacific. And a mystery. What's a circular pig tusk, often associated with Pacific customs, doing amid the wreckage of Titanic? How did it get there and who brought it on board? (laughs) What one would like to think, maybe a Vanuatu chief going to the US in disguise to ask for help to get rid of the British and French colonial government or something like that. (laughs) You never know. Those stories and more coming up on Pacific Beat. Former Papua New Guinea Prime Minister Peter O'Neill has been charged with giving false evidence. The prosecution was recommended by a commission of inquiry ordered by Mr O'Neill's successor, James Marape, into the loan worth more than a billion dollars from the Union Bank of Switzerland to the PNG government in 2014. That inquiry was convened to establish if the loan was illegal under PNG law. For more, we're joined by ABC PNG correspondent Tim Swan. Monston in Port Moresby. Good morning, Tim. Good morning. Now, take us through the charges laid against Mr O'Neill. Yeah, look, so he's facing three counts of giving false evidence at that particular Commission of Inquiry. Now, the hearings of that Commission of Inquiry were held across uh, 2021 and 2022, where Mr O'Neill gave evidence. The final report was wrapped up and delivered to Parliament in March of last year. Now, it was looking into this more than a billion dollar loan to the O'Neill government by the Union Bank of Switzerland's Australia branch in 2014. And it's really a story that, that's got a lot of history um, there at the time, you know, especially in the last few years, there's been a lot of reporting about that particular loan and then the worse off financial position that left Papua New Guinea in. Um, Basically, this loan was used to finance a 10% stake in a gas company that the PNG government bought, but when it later sold the shares a few years later, it lost $340 million. So this inquiry found Mr O'Neill was essentially responsible for the loan, but it also found and recommended that he be prosecuted for giving false evidence to that commission. So this was back in March last year, this was tabled. But then finally, he's since been charged with these three counts of giving false evidence. Now, Mr O'Neill says as far as he's aware, he didn't mislead the inquiry. Now, it was really interesting, Tim, because we saw um, Police Commissioner David Manning's release over the weekend encouraging Mr O'Neill to go in for talks with the police. We then saw a reply from Mr O'Neill saying that he would go in on Monday morning and effectively um, requesting that people go in in, like, not protesters, but people turn up to support him. Last night, we saw um, Police Commissioner David Manning send out a release saying that he received information that the crowds who congregated in front of the National Police Headquarters and the Barocco Police Station had been fun- had been funded with the intent to, to disrupt the whole process of justice. Um, you were there yesterday. Um, how did you see it all go down? 
Yeah, look, it was it was a fairly strange turn of events. I mean, ultimately, we had the police commissioner, David Manning, issue this statement on Saturday, which was basically like a, you know, front up, please explain, come and speak to the investigators, Peter O'Neill. And granted, this is more than a year after the uh, report has been tabled in Parliament where it's recommended this prosecution. Um, and then, yeah, we had this statement back from um, former Prime Minister Peter O'Neill saying that, yes, sure, it appears that I'm going to be questioned and I'll, I'll come in. He says that he welcomes the opportunity to face the courts to test what he calls a politically motivated and very expensive commission of inquiry, but he gives the time and date in which he's going to be coming into the uh, police headquarters. So we saw a very large crowd that uh, came to uh, the police headquarters yesterday morning. Um, hundreds of people, of course, very vocal and all uh, you know, seemingly supporters of Peter O'Neill. Neil. Um, but then, yeah, just last night, we've uh, seen a statement from Police Commissioner David Manning, where he believes um, that the information that's received by him is that many of the crowds um, had been funded with the intent to disrupt the process of justice. So, um, you know, it was a very vocal and a very passionate day from uh, many of these supporters uh, when Peter O'Neill was then finally charged and then processed down at the Boraco Police Station. There were huge crowds and he addressed those crowds in almost like a campaign rally kind of sense. Indeed. And we do have a, a bit of that response. Um, of course, Peter O'Neill is still the MP for Lalabu Pangia. Um, here's a bit of what yesterday sounded like. I have been charged for putting up a uh, false statement uh, at the Commission of Inquiry. They think that I've pictured myself. But uh, f- as far as I know, that uh, I did not mislead the Commission of Inquiry. But we will test this in court. Uh, uh, it's only uh, only in regard to those statements. The three counts of uh, uh, a charge saying that uh, I've lied under oath. Uh, and uh, they've believed my political opponents and other people who went and made statements in the Commission of Inquiry. Uh, this is all part of the game that they're playing to try and intimidate me and uh, arrest me. Uh, but uh, let me tell you that I am not going anywhere. I'll be here. Nobody will intimidate me and nobody will shut me up. You can just hear the crowd behind him supporting him there, Tim. So what happens now? That was a rare moment of quiet from the crowd, to be honest. But um, look, um, we're expecting him to face uh, a court magistrate in the coming days about these charges. But I guess ultimately we'll see what happens politically with this. It really adds fuel to the fire between um, the former Prime Minister and current Prime Minister, now James Marape. Um, ultimately, it, it appears that Mr O'Neill is keen to use these charges effectively as a platform to keep up the political pressure on James Marape. Again, sort of repeating claims that um, the election um, was was the election result last year was illegal was something that he sort of effectively did in in more or less a stump speech in the in the uh, police car park yesterday. So we'll see both what happens through court as well as the political fallout of this. Mm, indeed, you're listening to Pacific. Beat. I'm talking to PNG correspondent Tim Swanston. And Tim, in some other news as well overnight, Police Commissioner David Manning says that the schoolgirls taken hostage in Walagu Village have been released and a special operation has been launched to go after their captors. 
Yeah, look, this was a really harrowing story that came out towards the end of last week, and it was quite late to the story, effectively, and part of this is because communications are really challenging in the region. But effectively, the story was that 17 young girls had been taken hostage in a village, um, and there was also some reporting that um, some of those girls had been sexually assaulted. So after quite a considerable ordeal, it appears that the um, captors have released those girls on Saturday for a ransom of some 2,000 kina and five pigs that was paid by the villagers. Now, we were expecting to get some kind of police response over the weekend, but we didn't really receive anything um, sort of up until after those um, young girls were released. Now, uh, a statement has been issued by Police Commissioner David Manning, and he says upon the release of the girls that 11 victims were flown for medical checks. Um, He said now that all resources of the government will be utilised in a special operation. And in his words, he says, to end the reign of terror armed criminals have had in the isolated border areas of the Southern Highlands, Heller and Western provinces. So, uh, of course, we'll, there'll be more to follow in, in regards to this. Firstly, whether or not they do manage to up, catch up to these captors and if they are charged. And secondly, what this operation involves. But it was truly a really harrowing story that we heard. But uh, it sounds like, and uh, you know, of course, I think many people be very glad that these young girls have been uh, released. Uh, absolutely. The safety of the girls, um, paramount and very correct in saying how harrowing it, it was and to hear those details. And like you said, it was such a remote area in those isolated border, um, though that bordered area, it was hard to get information out. Um, Tim, thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That was PNG correspondent Tim Swanston joining us there. Now, if you're a Kiwi living in Australia or have family who are, you probably have heard the news of a pathway to Australian citizenship, which is becoming easier and cheaper as well. From July 1, people who've lived in the country for four years can skip past the costly step of becoming a permanent resident and directly apply to become citizens. But the change took families and migration agents by surprise. And after forking out thousands of dollars for visas, they want their money back. Melissa Macon has the story. Migration agent Erina Morunga just wanted her people to be safe and secure. As a New Zealander, she loaned almost $20,000 to help her fellow Kiwi clients get permanent residence in Australia. The single parents, they um, were just in a real bad way financially. You know, they're slowly paying me back. They could have avoided the worry of that. Like, why? Why it makes them pay for it? Ms. Morunga feels frustrated because recent policy changes now make that visa and its associated costs unnecessary. In April, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese unveiled a new direct pathway for Kiwis across the ditch. I don't think it will lead to more people from New Zealand coming to Australia. It will just mean that they're treated better when they're here. Simple as that, and that's the objective here. The change meant that from July 1, New Zealanders will no longer need a visa to become permanent residents in Australia. That's at least $4,000 per person saved. The only cost will be that of their Australian citizenship at $490. The Department of Home Affairs had more than 5,700 of these applications for families on the books in December last year, comprising more than 12,300 people. 
At that time, the department put a pause on new applications until July 1. But it also began fast-tracking the existing applications, something the government briefly mentioned in its October budget. Those in the queue were asked to finalise their visa payments in January. And last month, the ABC revealed many New Zealanders believed they were unfairly targeted in a cash grab. Now they want their money back, as Ms Mordunga explains. The criteria to get a refund is very narrow and we're not hopeful, but we are pleading with the department to consider that these are extraordinary circumstances. She urged the department to expedite citizenship processing or waive the $490 fee entirely for those New Zealanders who forked out unnecessarily. Everyone that's paid for permanent visas, that would be a show of good faith, I think, that the government did not intend to hurt New Zealanders as well, because it's just adding salt to the wound, really. A Home Affairs spokesperson said there were very limited circumstances in which a visa application refund and citizenship fee exemptions or concessions would be granted. Their statement said... The direct pathway to citizenship for New Zealand citizens living in Australia does not entitle NZ Stream visa holders to a refund of their visa application charge. There are no provisions under the citizenship regulation where visa holders are exempt from paying the citizenship application fee. But for those caught up in the policy change, this response is not enough. You know, I want to be able to vote here. I want to not be a um, temporary resident. I want to be, you know, um, a permanent resident. Georgia moved to Canberra with her family in 2009 as a teenager, but went back to New Zealand in 2012 to study at university before returning to Australia once again in 2016. When she settled down with her Australian partner, she wanted to have basic rights. You know, once I have kids here, which I intend to do, like I'll be still, you know, a temporary resident and they'll all be citizens. Yeah, I wanted the same rights um, as everyone else. She set out to become a permanent resident in 2021, applying for a skilled nominated visa. It took two years and cost more than $11,000, which included a civil union to prove her relationship, a skills assessment to prove her occupation, an X-ray and HIV test. In February this year, her visa was approved. Then in April, her phone pinged, telling her New Zealanders would soon have a direct pathway to citizenship. She felt all that hard work and cost was for nothing. I was in the car, my partner was getting something at the shops and I looked at my phone, um, read the article and I just burst out crying. An e-petition calling for visa application refunds and a demonstration of goodwill has now been submitted to federal parliament. That was Melissa Macon reporting there. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. Experts warn four-storey high waves could hit the Pacific due to climate change and destroy shoreline towns. Huge waves were recently recorded in the east of New Zealand's Campbell Islands, some of them measuring 23 metres 23 metres. Experts say this is due to faster and stronger winds towards the poles, resulting in more intense storms and rising water. Physical oceanographer at Met Ocean Solution, Jao Albuquerque, explains the science behind this phenomenon. So the biggest wave we have recorded this year was uh, 13.6 metres, and that was on around Campbell Islands. And that was a drifting buoy 
that was around and, and could record that wave. Are we having a growing concern about the size of those waves? Are, are, are these becoming increasingly dangerous, maybe closer to shore? Right. Uh, these are slightly different things, let's say, because when the wave uh, reaches a certain height, it it starts to dissipate its energy. It just breaks and starts to dissipate. So that's why we only see these huge waves in very deep waters, because the deeper the water, the bigger the wave can be. When the, the wave reaches shallower waters, it just starts to dissipate energy by breaking. And so by the time it reaches the shore, even though it can be a big wave, uh, it won't be as big as what you get in the ocean, right? But the things that we have associated with big waves are, for example, if you have a big storm happening, right, the waves can increase in size. And as the waves increase in size, the water level around the beach increases just because of the wave energy that is arriving. So there's more water arriving, so the water level automatically increases. So that is something that could cause beach erosion, for example. This is what we call wave setup. But then on top of the wave setup, we can also add the difference in pressure that occurs when, when there's a storm. Like normally the, the storm has a low pressure system. It occurs during a, in, in, within a, a low pressure system. And this low pressure system pulls the water up. So you have the wave setup plus the, this is what we call storm surge when the, 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 the storm just pulls the water, the water level up. So the water level increases even more and you have the big waves. And then that's where you can get, like depending on the intensity of the storm, depending on the amount of sand that you have on the beach until you get some, some structure or something, you can raise the water level and you have strong waves hitting either uh, infrastructure or just uh, eroding the wave and uh, eroding the beach. And this this sort of process is occurring. So that's when things really become dangerous. But note that it's not like one huge wave, but it's a whole process. It's a storm and big waves and the water level increasing and then wiping out, you know, a beach or anything like that around the shore. Right. And we are getting obviously stronger storms, like more intense storms that create those uh, phenomena of waves. Um, uh, since since the temperatures have been rising? So we do have evidence that as these indices change, the wave characteristics will change as well. Like in a warmer planet, the changes in these indices and in the waves are going to be more severe. Uh, we have simulations for that uh, that shows, for example, that in a warmer planet, um, there's this westerly jet that is basically like all of the winds that are uh, running around the, the southern ocean. As the planet warms up, these winds, they shift towards the pole. And as they shift towards the pole, they get even faster than they already are. And this can generate like even bigger waves than what we have nowadays. So the thing about the Pacific Islands, around there you could have, then we would be looking at another area. Uh, we would be looking around the um, tropics. So we, we can also see changes around the trade winds. But yeah, mostly around the eastern Pacific, that's where you can have some, some increase in the trade winds and then also on the wave heights. But you can also have an increase in wave heights around the Pacific Islands if you look as the westerly jet down, as it shifts poleward and increases in speed, 
it will generate bigger waves, and these waves can propagate all the way up to the Pacific Islands as well. So there is an, an expected uh, increase in wave height at the Pacific Islands, also due to this uh, poleward shift of the westerly jet. That was Joel Albuquerque from Met Ocean Solution talking there to Jan Kahoot. In the Fale is a brand new music show on ABC Radio Australia. Hosted by me, Paola Tukefu. I'll be spinning my favourite tunes from dancehall to disco, calypso to country, reggae to roots, and hip-hop to house music from across the era to keep the kids and the aunties happy. If it has a pumping groove, I'll be bringing it to you to bump you into the weekend. In the Fale, Fridays at 4pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. That sound signals that it's time to find out what's making news across the region. I'm joined by Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Talia. And he's here to take us through the stories of today. Let's start in Fiji, Kyle, where the government there will meet today following reports of discontent among members of the coalition. That's right. The uh, Social Democratic Liberal Party, who formed a coalition with the People's Alliance to form the new government, has demanded an inner party meeting with uh, PM uh, Sidavani Rambuka. So this is reported by the Fiji Times, who say the party is disappointed that a number of promises made uh, during to that during that coalition agreement, or prior to forming that coalition government, sorry, uh, have not been honoured. So according to the party vice president, uh, Anare Jale, Sadelpa members were promised board memberships they haven't received, as well as diplomatic postings uh, for Fiji embassies in the US and the UK. Uh, He went on to say there are options the party will pursue if their grievances are not addressed. And do we have any idea what those options might be? No, so it wasn't clarified in the article. However, Sadelpa's general secretary uh, was a little bit more subdued with his language. Uh, He said the party is focused on crisis management and ensuring the stability of the coalition. Um, Interestingly, the article also stated that as part of that uh, that coalition agreement, uh, those diplomatic missions that were agreed to were subject on merit and not party standing. So it does appear like there might have been some sort of miscommunication there. Mm. But uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see what comes out of that meeting for today. And of course, um, Richard Ewart will be along for the afternoon edition of Pacific Beat. So if anything does eventuate, we'll be sure to bring you the news this afternoon. Um, Let's move now to the West Papuan Council of Churches, which has called on Indonesia to cease military um, operations so that they can help um, with the release of the New Zealand hostage Philip Mertens. What's going on there? That's right. So the council uh, has said Philip Merton's life is in danger if negotiations do not take place uh, with the West Papuan Liberation Army. So this is according to RNZ, who's reported that chief moderator of the council, his name is Reverend Benny G.A., he's penned a letter to President Wadodo of Indonesia asking him to withdraw military and allow the church to go in uh, and open a dialogue. He says since the kidnapping, uh, violence has only escalated between uh, the Indonesian military uh, and the TPNPB, uh, and in order to stop that, a peaceful approach, approach is required. Mm, I know that um, 
Many people have written to the Indonesian president, Joko Widodo, about um, West Papua. Are they confident of a response? Well, interestingly, Indonesia or Indonesian authorities already say they are pursuing a peaceful dialogue to the crisis, uh, and therefore the church does worry that the government won't take them seriously, uh, and therefore they won't, uh, they can't really guarantee, um, you know, any good result, I guess. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Mm, indeed. Um, let's go now to some more funding um, that the Solomon Islands has received for the Pacific Games, this time from Saudi Arabia. Yeah, another interesting one. So Saudi Arabia has uh, has given the Solomon Islands seven million dollars, uh, seven sorry seven million dollars to go towards games preparation uh, preparations. Uh, that's reported by the Solomon Island Times, who confirmed that transfer of funds yesterday. And it comes after Minister Sogavare travelled to the country late last week upon invitation from the Saudi government um, to explore areas of cooperation uh, with the Middle Eastern nation. And what kind of opportunities of cooperation are they looking at? Yeah, so according to the uh, Solomon Island Times, they're eyeing ways to strengthen uh, a number of different sectors. They include renewable energy, tourism, uh, as well as climate change. I understand they'll meet with potential investors while they're over there and other leaders in those spaces. And uh, and moving forward, I understand there's plans to for eventually for the Solomon Islands to set up a diplomatic mission uh, in the Gulf region. So I imagine discussions will probably take place around that mm, as well. Yeah, obviously, there's lots of geopolitical meetings and things going <laughs> on. So it just looks like it's moving further and further abroad. Um, Kyle, thank you so much for bringing us those stories. Thank you, Talia. That was Kyle Evans with some of the stories making news today. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on AVC Radio Australia. I'm Talia Olatia. Soon we're going to talk about dark patterns. If you don't know what dark patterns are, they're in relation to technology, then I encourage you to stick around and find out all about it because these patterns are being used and can trick us sometimes into buying things that we don't need at prices that we definitely don't want to be paying. That story coming up shortly. But first, circular pig tusks are unique to the Pacific and well associated to Vanuatu through their use in traditional custom. So what's a circular pig tusk doing a the world's most famous shipwreck, Titanic? Well, that's the question Pacific watchers have been asking since spotting the item in the first ever full-sized digital scan of the luxury passenger liner, which sank in the North Atlantic Ocean in 1912 after striking an iceberg. So why was this circular pig tusk carried on to Titanic and who brought it on board? It's a mystery I couldn't help but dive into. When keen eyes spotted a circular pig tusk in recently released images of wreckage from Titanic, a curious game of what if began to play. Maybe a box that's burst open of somebody who was carrying stuff to New York, exotic jewellery to sell, or (laughs) what one would like to think, maybe a Vanuatu chief in disguise wearing uh, early 1900 sunglasses going to the US to ask for help to get get rid of uh, the British and French colonial government. (laughs) You never know. 
That's Kirk Huffman, Honorary Curator of the Vanuatu Cultural Centre. I got in touch with him after he sent me an email about the unusual sighting. Look, it's not completely implausible. There's only a few areas of the world where you get circular tusks like that. It's not a natural thing. That tradition you find in 60 or so cultures in the northern half of Vanuatu, and you also find it in the southern part of the island of New Britain, in Papua New Guinea, and you also find it on the island of Nias in Indonesia. The images were part of the largest underwater scanning project in history, conducted by the firm Magellan, which specialises in ultra-deep underwater surveying. When the images were released, international attention quickly surrounded what was close to the circular pig tusk, a necklace. It's been 84 years. No, not Rose's Heart of the Ocean necklace, but rather one made from a shark's tooth, possibly that of a prehistoric megalodon set in a gold clasp. Everybody was focusing, the press were all focusing on the the giant prehistoric shark's tooth, and nobody in the press mentioned uh, this uh, circular pig's tusk nearby and all those what looked like shell beads nearby. Those shell beads also sparked theories of Pacific connections, since they're used as money or in ceremonial armbands on some islands. But it was the circular pig's tusk, also embellished in gold, that had people convinced of the link. We can save 100% that that circular pig tusk lying on the sea floor associated with the Titanic comes from that southwest Pacific. That's Stuart Bedford. He's a senior fellow at the Australian National University and has been looking at circular pig tusks in Vanuatu and the wider Pacific for decades. Now, whether we can say it's Vanuatu, which is probably more well-known across the globe, really, for these these very distinctive items, or not, uh, we can't be sure, because they were also produced in parts of New Guinea and also in Fiji. And if you were to get it out, is there anything that would identify the type of pig to where it might be from? Or, like, you know, some kind of <laughs> DNA test? I don't know. <laughs> CSI Pacific? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice idea. No, no. Um, the, the, the forms are pretty much the same. Now, this mystery is actually a really nice reminder of just how connected the globe is, and those connections date back well before Titanic sunk. While we don't know when the circular pig tusk tradition started in the Pacific, European records of them in Vanuatu date back to first contact in 1606. So by the time Titanic made its maiden voyage, they were already being sent around the world. They were very early on picked up by, you know, souvenired by various travellers, and they made their way across the globe. There's a wonderful case of Samoan royalty sending circular pig tusk to the British Museum in the early part of the 20th century. It had grown that status in the historic period in Samoa, and then it's being sent off as a sort of gift, the high status item. So those sort of networks have been well established uh, in the late 19th century and certainly in the early 20th centuries. As Kirk Huffman said, circular pig tusks are not natural. It involves a specific kind of boar dentistry, and it also requires lots of dedication, commitment and patience from the pig's owners to achieve that full circle tusk. Usually with male pigs, you have to knock out the upper canine teeth first, and then gradually the lower tusk, which then doesn't have anything to grind itself down against, will grow in a circular fashion without being scratched down. Now, to do a a circular tusk growth like the one in the photograph, that would take about maybe five or six years of growth, at a guess, after the upper canine teeth of that particular pig had been taken out. So let's do a quick mystery recap. We know it's definitely a circular pig tusk. 
We know it's certainly from the Pacific. Where exactly, though, we're not sure. And we know that in 1912, circular pig tusks were travelling around the world. But why was this one on Titanic's voyage from England to New York? Given it's the world's most famous ship, there's definitely lots of information out there on it. Titanic databases online list everything from the more than 2,000 passengers and crew on board to insurance claims that were later filed. However, going through the databases, I quickly realised you need two things. One, to know who or what to even look for, and two, a whole lot of time. Yeah, it would be a great, a really great, if someone had the time to, you know, sort of profile those people on board and, and connections they might have had. Indeed. Um, you're not volunteering to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I had a brief look at the list that you sent me and, uh, you know, it's quite extensive. Nobody leapt out as a, as a sort of collector or someone had visited the region. My, my you know, knowledge is very specifically Vanuatu in terms of identifying collectors or traders or anything. So while Stuart Bedford knows circular pig tusks, I needed someone who knew the Titanic. So I reached out to the Titanic International Society, thinking maybe they knew of a possible Pacific Vanuatu Titanic connection. In fact, the mystery just got deeper. They say because of Titanic's popularity, there have been numerous expeditions to the wreckage site, and in some cases, people even leave behind various artefacts and memorial items. And so I quickly realised that solving this mystery is probably better left to someone without a news deadline, because journalists, like historians and archaeologists, can't just operate on speculation alone. We don't know. I mean, uh, one can't look at that too closely because <laughs> the original things that are in the photograph are a long way under the sea and one can't really sort of uh, speculate fully on these things until the things are brought up and one can look at them properly. Now, there is an agreement between the UK and US which prevents members of the public from removing artefacts from Titanic's wreck and surrounding bed, so it's not as if you can just put on your wetsuit and head down. But remember that shark tooth necklace I mentioned earlier? Well, it could actually be a glimmer of hope in solving this mystery. See, in a bid to seek out the Megalodon tooth jewellery owner, the underwater specialist firm Magellan have been using artificial intelligence to contact the family members of those on board the Titanic when it sank. They'll analyse footage of passengers boarding the ship using technology like facial recognition and they'll try and figure out who brought the necklace on board. And maybe that person also brought on the circular pig tusk as well and then maybe, finally, we'll get an idea as to why. And definitely don't worry because I'm not giving up on this. If anyone knows anything, then please send me a tweet on Twitter. I'm at Tali Olatia. We need to be prepared for the future. Disasters are inevitable, but losing your home or your life isn't. Cyclone after cyclone, every natural disaster gets worse. Learn what to do before, during and after natural disasters in this program aimed at keeping you safe. I'm a Pacific Prepared. Fridays at 9.30am PNG time here on ABC Radio Australia. 
You're listening to Pacific Beat. I'm Talia Olatia. Fiji's Competition and Consumer Commission is warning people about the risk of dark patterns. And no, this is not some kind of fashion advice, but a warning about the sneaky way some websites get you to spend money or make decisions that you don't usually make. To find out more, we're joined by Fiji's Consumer Commission CEO, Joel Abraham. Bulavanaka, Joel, and thank you for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Uh, nice to be here. Now, let's start with the obvious question. Um, what are dark patterns? Yeah, uh, so this is uh, something that's uh, quite new in the consumer protection field and a lot of consumer protection agencies are now looking at it, especially the advent of digitalization. Everybody is now on a device. And so uh, historically, uh, businesses used to engage in different sales tactics and uh, technique designs to entice consumers into making purchases. Now, this used to be in the brick and mortar system, used to be uh, signs outside the uh, shopping uh, uh, area. It used to be uh, advertisements on television. Now, uh, there's a lot of surfing that goes on on uh, on the internet. And so, uh, dark patterns basically are deceptive uh, tactics that are used by companies to manipulate consumers into making choices that they would otherwise not make. Uh, this basically exploits the psychological vulnerabilities of consumers with tactics such as misleading information, hidden cost, uh, confusing user interface. Um, and the gist of it is that these are tactics that are employed uh, by businesses to maximize their profit at the expense of consumer welfare. I mean, it doesn't take much for me to convince myself to buy something online. Um, but, you know, what are the traps that, you know, people might fall into? Do you have any specific examples of that kind of, um, those kind of patterns that people might fall victim to? Sure. Uh, there, there's some examples of dark patterns. Uh, this include everything from sneaking, as you uh, mentioned earlier. Uh, this is basically adding a few extra items. So when you select... Uh, uh, when you click and select one instead of one, it selects two, or you get into a subscription, uh, you opt in, it makes it so difficult for you to opt out. Uh, there's continuous reminders, uh, pestering users to take uh, certain actions, such as signing up for newsletters or having notifications to uh, opt in um, uh, into plans. This is called nagging. And the things like forced action, this is basically requiring users to take action uh, before they can access any desired content. Uh, a lot of it involves sharing personal information. Now, in today's day and age, uh, we forget that data is, 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 is the gold of today. And what companies do is uh, they get personal information. And basically, if you want to uh, access some content, it is uh, mandatory that you must share that information. And so that happens and it end, ends up being exploited for um, reasons other than what you shared it for. Mm. Interface interference or so what uh, happens is um, the design is in such a way that it is intentionally meant to mislead or confuse uh, consumers, making it challenging for them to navigate or find desired option. Uh, here you could have things like uh, bait and switch tactics as well. So you, you advertise and you say, you know, uh, this many items... Uh, at 50% discount for the first 50 customers and everybody's on their uh, computer trying to press buy uh, or add to cart, uh, check out. And what happens is um, sale was really not there. Uh, 
not 50 people and uh, then another promotion uh, another offer pops up and says you know uh, this is up for 20 percent and it's meant to just entice consumers into spending mm. and and there's also this social uh, 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 dynamics of creating uh, social proof so basically what it does it manipulates users by displaying false or misleading uh, social proof indicators such as fake testimonials uh, fake uh, reviews inflated user reviews and this is all designed to just influence the decision and uh, create some sort of uh, some sort of urgency and, uh, and and the last one of course uh, agency is creating a false sense of agency basically putting time pressure making users uh, rush their decision making process Joel, I wish you could see my face right now because my mouth has been open because I think I have fallen victim to some of these things. But unknowingly, when you were talking about subscriptions, I once signed up to a subscription for a, um, a like an online newspaper. It was like $2 a week. I needed it to get access for a story because it was behind a paywall. And I just was like, it's fine. I'll just put it in and then I'll just cancel the subscription. And it, it literally the hoops that you had to jump through, that you had to call a certain number at a certain time. And let's be honest, I'm lazy. So I was just, it's only $2 a week. I'll just keep doing it. Um, And then until I saw something else that you could register and they would do the work for you to get off these subscription mailing lists. But it's one of those things that people can so easily get caught up in it. And I have to admit, you know, most of the time when I do my online shopping, it's either when I am tired just before I go to bed or when I'm bored. So I'm probably not activating my brain as as clearly as I should be. Um, What are the things that you can look out for online? Is it a case of, you know, actually reading the terms and conditions that I often skip past? Or is there anything on the site that might show me that I'm being duped at that moment? Because most of the times when I've fallen victim to it, it seemed pretty legit. Yeah, I, I mean, everybody is guilty of skipping the terms and conditions and the finer prints. And uh, uh, this is the uh, and and this is the bias uh, that companies understand. Uh, that consumers do not want to get uh, to reading five, six pages of terms and conditions and contracts, etc., uh, etc., et before making the purchase. I mean, if you want something, you want to get it. Uh, so, few things that people need to uh, be on the lookout for is be wary of excessive pop-ups, notifications, or persistent requests that are designed to pressure you to take some immediate action or give some information. Also carefully take time and read and understand the information that's presented to you uh, before accepting any offers or subscribing to any services or making purchases. Uh, Look for hidden or obscured options, uh, especially uh, during account creation or subscription signups or checkout processes. Uh, Ensure that you are not uh, agreeing to something that you didn't intend to. Pay attention to some placements, uh, wordings, uh, the designs of buttons, Links, checkbox, uh, dark patterns uh, often use uh, this to manipulate elements uh, to nudge you towards uh, unintended action. And they use everything from color to uh, the size of uh, or placements, etc. And be be skeptical when it comes to limited offers or agent messages that are designed to basically pressure you into taking some immediate action. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, consumer is king. Take your time. Don't need to rush into buying things. Take your time, be wary, uh, 
and and then spend your money. Mm. It sounds like that old old adage that if it's too good to be true, then it probably isn't true. Yes. That we often don't we don't acknowledge. Yeah. We just go, oh my gosh, a bargain! <laughs> I add it to my cart and buy it straight away. Um, so for people who do fall for them, <laughs> i.e. me, um, what are the recourses after there? Uh, like, uh, can banks help out? Are there any legal protections? Like, once you realise something has gone bad, um, you know, what can we do to prevent, um, like, to both help ourselves but prevent other people also falling um, victim to it as well? Yeah, uh, so uh, it's it's basically uh, we've we've been trying to raise awareness on this on this matter as well because uh, uh, until uh, we got in touch with our counterparts from the international community, I think the concept of dark patterns was relatively unknown even to the consumer protection agency. And uh, we have been since uh, re- uh, raising a lot of awareness. Who can help? Uh, you've uh, got consumer protection agencies uh, in, in different countries. In Fiji, it's the FCCC. Uh, consumers can uh, lodge complaints with us. If you're, uh, and, and the test is, if you're not sure, if you're slightly suspicious, you think something's wrong, uh, you know the science um, and uh, you know what to uh, look out for, what to avoid. Some examples as well. If you are unsure, contact the FCCC free of charge. We will assist you. We are accessible uh, on all media platforms. Uh, uh, different countries have their own consumer protection agencies. In fact, uh, it is also something that we are working on with our regional counterparts to establish a network of regulators in the Pacific, uh, especially the consumer protection regulators, competition and um, price regulators. What this will do is ensure that information is readily shared. Um, unfortunately, sometimes what happens is the uh, uh, businesses, uh, when approached, uh, they will deny this uh, because sometimes dark patterns are very difficult to identify um, and may be embedded in their websites uh, or, or in their sales uh, sales processes. So uh, obviously, the, uh, the businesses will say. Uh, this is nothing to do with us. So I think the first uh, point of redress for consumers is raising awareness. And the reason I say this is because you could be looking at it from your end, but there could be thousands and thousands of customers uh, that are going through the same website, not knowing uh, what's happening. And there's so many websites. It's so easy to put up a website today. Uh, Ease of business is... uh, uh, is being looked at in the Pacific. Uh, there's a lot of SMEs coming up. There's a lot of big businesses uh, entering multinationals coming to our show. So I think it's something to be wary of. Uh, the idea is if there's exploitation of consumer trust, that, that is the test here. Yeah. If your trust has been violated, uh, report it. I mean, there's no yeah. harm in that. Absolutely. Um, Joel Abraham, we'll have to leave it there because news is quickly approaching. But thank you so much for making time to talk to the Pacific. I know that you've definitely taught me a lot this morning, so I appreciate it. (laughs) That was Joel Abraham there, the CEO of Fiji's Competition and Consumer Commission, warning of the dark patterns that are out there. And he didn't even know that those patterns existed. I for sure didn't. That is all for Pacific Beat for today. Richard Ewart will be along for the afternoon afternoon edition and I'll be back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Talia Olatia, Fafatai Lefa Alongulongu, Tofasoi Fua.